This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. The speaker is Shyla Catherine. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. For those of you that have been coming for the last five weeks, you'll know that we're in a series on the obstacles to meditation practice. And we've covered um, the traditional five obstacles that the Buddha spoke of, sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and tonight we're going to tackle doubt. Now, can we do that? Or is that doubting? Who knows? I want to talk about two kinds of doubt. First, a kind of healthy doubt. And this is not considered one of the hindrances. And this is doubt as inquiry. Because I think it's wise to actually doubt a lot of what we hear and are taught. Just because we read it, the Buddha said such and such, doesn't mean that we should believe it. We need to consider what it is that we read, whether it's in the scriptures or in propaganda or in newspapers or in conversations or on the internet, to consider what is really of value. Just because we have a view and an opinion doesn't mean that it's valuable doesn't mean that it's really useful. Sometimes we have opinions about things that just don't hold up to clear examination when we investigate it. Sometimes we can't even support the things that we believe. I've been taking emergency response class, and it's amazing how many things are done differently now than they were done 10 years ago or 20 years ago in the protocol for how to do something as simple as rescue breathing or CPR. They just change. Now, does that mean it's right or wrong? It's the current protocol. It's the best that the group can decide is the best way of approaching it. But in five years from now, it could be different as well. Something more could be learned. Something more could be known. And that could change. So if we take a strong stand that something has to be done a certain way, then we might have rigidified around a view. And we can ask ourselves, how do we hold our views? Can we have a little doubt about things? This was a question that one of my teachers, Christopher Titmus, often asks. And when students would describe, you know, oh, it should be this way, or things are this way, I would often hear him say, can you just have a little doubt about that? And sometimes it's only when we articulate our opinion to somebody who doesn't share that opinion that we realize that it's actually opinion and not the way things are. Sometimes we have beliefs that just are not facts, beliefs about who we are, beliefs about the value of different feelings or different thoughts, beliefs about what should be happening in our meditation practice or how spiritual or how advanced we are or how um, difficult things are. Sometimes we have beliefs about personalities, about what kind of person somebody is. And sometimes we have beliefs about material things. This is solid. It will always be here. How did we get that belief? And yet sometimes we interact with things in the world as though we believe it's true, that it's lasting, that it's going to be here for our whole lives. And we rely upon something because we have believed it to be permanent. 
Can we look at those beliefs and have some doubt about them? There's a great discourse that many of you are familiar with called the Kalama Sutta. And this discourse is a remembering of an event that took place in India at the time of the Buddha, where he was wandering throughout northern India, and he came upon a town that was situated at the crossroads. And there were all kinds of spiritual teachers coming from this direction, getting on their soapbox and teaching that this philosophy. And then there were lots of teachers coming from that direction and from this direction and from all over, just sort of passing through and teaching their thing, whatever their thing was. So the Buddha comes through with his monks and teaches his thing. And the Kalamas say, we have just heard from such and 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 such teachers. How and they all say different things. How are we supposed to know what to practice? How are we supposed to know what was right? And the Buddha said, Do not believe things because of the charisma of the teacher. Do not believe it because it was written in the scriptures. Do not believe it because it has been done for thousands and thousands of years or from several generations back. Do not believe it because your friends and neighbors believe it. Do not believe it because it's the popular belief. He said, look into your experience. Try it out. See if it leads to happiness or if it leads to harm for yourself and others. So it was asking people not to go by belief, but instead to really investigate. And I think it's important when we consider belief that we consider belief in relationship to investigation so that beliefs aren't just a kind of idea that we cling to in our minds. Can we have just a little bit of doubt, enough doubt that we really look into the experience to see what it is, to see if it's useful. I liked this um, little movie that I saw some years ago called Simon Birch, where it was about a young disabled boy who had tremendous faith. And he was having a conversation, and he said, your problem is, is that you don't have faith. And the friend said, I have faith. I just want proof to back it up. There doesn't need to be any contradiction between investigation and faith. So that's one form of doubting that the Buddha encouraged. The translation is, it is right to doubt what should be doubted, which include beliefs, which include, actually there's a whole list of things, but we won't go into all of those because I want to get to doubt as an obstacle. There's healthy doubt, and then that's doubt that leads to investigation and reflection. And then there's the unhealthy doubt, which is doubt is an obstacle, doubt is an obstruction. And it's important to distinguish between these two doubts so that we can recognize what is a hindrance and what is not. Doubt as a hindrance does not lead to investigation. It describes an inability to discern what is wise, an inability to pause and to say, oh, will this lead to happiness or welfare? And try it, and then ask again, is this leading to happiness or harm? And then take the next step. Is this leading to happiness or harm? And then take the next step. That's healthy doubt. 
Doubt as an obstacle doesn't allow us to take a step and then look at it because we're so perplexed and so confused that it's as though we're looking this way, looking that way, not sure if we should take a step this way or do that or turn this way or try that. And we're just kind of circling around in our minds. Very often the experience is of paralysis. We can't make a decision. We don't know how to proceed. A few weeks ago for the opening talk of this series, I spoke about each of the hindrances being likened to a bowl that was filled with water. For doubt, that bowl of water is like the bowl of water that has been put in a dark place that is muddy and stirred up. And like that, we can't see clearly. When there's a lot of doubt in the mind, we don't have the capacity to take a risk, to make a commitment, or to see things for ourselves. And because we are so stuck, often the reaction of mind is to either grasp an opinion or to believe what somebody else says because we just don't know for ourselves. We haven't been able to look. Some people are plagued with doubts as a dominant theme in their minds. And for them, decision-making can be excruciating. I was just speaking about doubt the other day at a small group. And we were just more having a conversation. I didn't have all my papers. And I remembered going into the rap store over in university. It can be an excruciating experience if there's any tendency towards doubt. Because you go up to the counter and the first thing the person asks is, what kind of tortilla do you want? And you have to choose between spinach and corn and whole wheat flour and regular flour and the, 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 the white flour. There's like, there's like six different kinds of tortillas. And then what kind of filling do you want? Okay, so you get chicken, you get tofu, you get this, you get that, you get pork and beef and da 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 da. Okay, then you have to choose between what kind of vegetables you want in there. And then there's like all these different sauces to choose from. And it can take a very long time to order a burrito. By the time I finished ordering my burrito, they don't call them burritos, excuse me, they call them wraps. By the time I finished ordering my wrap, I just wanted to say, can I just like anything, anything would be fine. <laughs> just make it edible. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes decision-making can be around very petty little things like that. Sometimes it can be huge life decisions, you know, to change a job, to change location, to get married, to not, to do this or to that. Sometimes we make decisions that really turn our lives in one direction or another. Do you know the experience of doubt? It's as though the mind is twisted. It's as though it's kind of swirling like a tornado with thoughts about this. Actually, doubt isn't one of my favorite hindrances, but when I experience it, it's the thought of, if I do this, oh no, then this, 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 this might happen. Maybe I'll try that. Oh, that, 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 that. Oh, if somebody does, do, 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 do. And the mind starts to proliferate into all sorts of possibilities. And that proliferation virtually always leads to anxiety, worry, increased uncertainty, which is quite a different experience than being able to reflect on the situation and saying, you know, I don't know, but being okay with not knowing. And saying, I don't know, but given this moment, I'm going to make this decision. And then reflect again, and then take the next step. 
and then the next step. That kind of approach is very different than the mind that can't take an action and is going if, 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 what if, and then we get all tied up. One of the first things we do when we recognize that doubt has arisen is we turn our attention to recognize this is doubt. We catch that thought. We know it's a thought, but more than that, we know it is painful. If we're not willing to bear the pain of doubt in the mind, then we will run off with all of those thoughts just to be running away from the doubt, or we'll grasp a hold of an opinion, or we'll just comply with whatever the person next to us put on their burrito. Just because we can't bear that moment of indecision, that moment of not knowing, that moment of, of doubt. So the first thing to do is to really recognize doubt. If we can note it, say it, call it, this is doubt, then we are in that moment, we are being mindful of doubt. So the mind is no longer doubting because it's certain of one thing. It's certain that it's experiencing doubt. Doubt is based in fear, the fear that we could make the wrong choice, the fear of other people's opinions, or the fear that we can't bear the consequences of our own actions, the fear that we can't bear whatever will come, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And sometimes we can do kind of nutty things in a space of doubt. There's one discourse where the Buddha was telling a simile to a monk named Malankyaputta. The talks that he gave to Malankyaputta are so sweet because Malankyaputta was just always full of doubt. And he had so many speculative thoughts. And he was worrying all the time about things that could never be figured out. I mean, he had lots of conversations with the Buddha. And one of the, the most endearing is the time when Malankyaputta had finally kind of got fed up because there were a lot of philosophical disputes that were going on, debates and questions. And he thought, well, the Buddha's omniscient. He should be able to say it's like this. And if he doesn't know, well, then he should have the guts to say, I don't know. And they were questions about, you know, what happens after death, and is the soul the same thing as the body, or is the body, da, 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 you know, or is the world infinite? You know, they were philosophical questions. And the Buddha basically said it's unbeneficial to respond to these questions. And he instead gave a simile, and he said, imagine a soldier who's on the battlefield and has been shot by an arrow. And he's lying on the battlefield, and a surgeon or a medic comes to extract the arrow. But this soldier says, no, 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 don't do anything until we first know who shot the arrow. What kind of house did the man live in? What caste did he come from? Was he light-skinned or dark-skinned? Was he tall? Was he short? What was his wife's name? Did they have children? Was it a, a two-story house or a one-story house? Did it have a thatched roof or a tiled roof? Was it made of adobe or bamboo or brick? Then, he, then there's these long pages. It goes on and on and on. What kind, of, what kind of wood was the bow made out of? What kind of feathers were on the arrow? What kind of sinew bound the shaft? What kind of... You know, it just goes on and on. And the Buddha basically says, this guy would die before he got his questions answered. 
like this if we let the mind go off into speculative questions that have no answer we will surely die before we have turned our attention to something that might be of value that might matter so the buddha said let go of all of these speculative questions and turn your attention to consider wisely what leads to happiness and what leads to harm that's the basis of wisdom is to be able to reflect what leads to happiness and what leads to harm now in the buddhist tradition it said that there are three common arenas that meditators experience doubt in during their meditation practice one is doubt in self and this comes with the thought i can't do this practice it's too hard for me i'll never be able to learn i came in here and i only caught no breaths <laughs> or one breath <laughs> or i've been practicing for a year now and i can't whatever so we start to have these doubts about our own ability to do the practice our own ability to grow and the tendency is when we start to judge ourselves and proliferate self doubt is that we create a greater sense of insecurity and in that insecurity we withdraw even further from the difficulties we don't turn and face our experience we're afraid to even turn and face the mind of doubt we get a little more slothful and there's even more space for more hindrances the problem with doubt is it's very self-fulfilling it creates the conditions for more doubt the other area of doubt that's very common for meditation practitioners is doubt in the teacher any time you find the mind going off into the analysis of the personality of the teacher it's a dangerous arena and it will lead to doubt or if you question her fashion taste <laughs> or <laughs> other various aspects of the teacher it's a realm of questioning that will simply not lead to your own empowerment there are things that should be questioned in teachers ethics the development of wisdom the development of the mind these really should be scrutinized they should be discerned but a lot of times the doubting won't occur in that arena it'll occur in terms of of very personality sorts of issues it can be very helpful to realize what a teacher's function is and that's to what is a teacher's function i think in some way to try to bring the teachings of ethics and of the development of the mind and of wisdom sila samadhi and panya to try to communicate this path to try and guide people to some extent on the path teachers don't have to be enlightened i'm not we only can guide a little bit but then when you surpass me then you go find somebody else or i become your student and then we keep plodding along in this way it's helpful to recognize what it is we look for in teachers because sometimes doubts can proliferate around these things that really are not of central importance they don't lead to happiness 
They aren't the question of what leads to happiness or what leads to harm. Now, the other arena is doubt in the teachings. And this can often occur with the thought, you know, this is not the right practice for me. It's not very modern. It may have been fine for celibate monks 2,600 years ago, but it simply doesn't work today. Or thoughts like that. And we start to doubt the um, effectiveness of the practice. Sometimes we'll doubt the effectiveness of the practice because we'll start to get confused. And this can happen if um, you've received instructions to feel the breath at the nostrils. And then either you come to a different day, and I'm talking about the breath at the abdomen, or you go to a different teacher who says, now notice the breath at the abdomen. And then you talk to another teacher, or you come to a different workshop, and the focus is on pain. Then they say, notice pain. And then, oh, no, no, notice mind states. Let the mind be spacious. Focus really clearly. Do metta practice. No focus on concentration. No do mindfulness practice. No, ignore all of those and focus on your daily life practice while you're washing the dishes. No, what's really central is the practice of generosity. You've got to study. You've got to read the text. What we realize is that there's actually a wealth. There's a rich, rich full and comprehensive tradition. But if the mind starts to focus on, I've got to be doing this and this the right way, as soon as we hear something that contradicts it, then the mind can start to get that perplexed, bewildered, confused feeling because we might feel like we're not doing it right. And then in that discomfort, we reject the whole lot and we say this practice is no good. It doesn't work anymore. We may not have allowed it to work. That's, again, the self-fulfilling aspect of doubt. Doubts can stop us from even doing the simple thing of trying something out. Because when the mind starts to doubt, and it goes from this thought to this thought to this thought, we're wrapped up in thoughts, and we are disconnected from the present moment experience. We're disconnected from our bodies, We're disconnected from our breath. We're disconnected from a real life force. And we're caught in this fear of future occurrences. So doubt inhibits our ability not just to act, but it inhibits our ability to listen. It inhibits our ability to try anything to let the practice reveal itself, to allow the moments to unfold. Because doubt is so painful and so uncomfortable. For me, it's the most painful of the hindrances. may not be for you. Everybody has their different inclination. But I find doubt to be excruciating. And when it is very strong and we feel that pain, if we don't trust ourselves and allow ourselves to feel the pain of this hindrance, then the tendency of mind is very often to hold an opinion to grasp a view. And this can lead to fundamentalism, to a real strong dogmatic kind of attitude, just because we want to have a place to stand. But underneath the strength of that opinion, we might know that there's really deep insecurity. We're really unsure. And underneath that, there's a basic lack of trust. We haven't uprooted or resolved the issue of doubt. We've just added this extra layer of grasping, this little fixation on top.
So especially if views are strong, then I look to see if there's insecurity underneath there. Because it's kind of a classic signal. Why would we need to hold something if we really knew it? Zen Master Chinul said, don't side with yourself. I love that quote. I love that quote. If we're believing our own opinions, it's worth having a little doubt about that and looking to see what's going on underneath that. When we don't believe the story of doubt, then we're mindful enough to be mindful of the doubt and to feel the energy of that insecurity. It's not going to be pleasant, but it will be closer to the truth than any of our opinions. Doubt disempowers us, and the great danger of doubt is that it has the power to stop us if we believe those destructive thoughts. One of my friends had a lovely, I'd say, spiritual experience. She had really undertaken some spiritual inquiry in her life in, in, in a lot of dimensions. And one small component of it was a meditative dimension. During this period of her life, she felt a sense that really something really opened for her very profoundly, very deeply. She really felt a, a unification with life, a, a sense of love and an undifferentiated quality that seemed to very much inform compassion in her life, in her service. And she was part of the Methodist Church and her activities there. And it was a very important experience for her. But she said that because of the mindfulness practice that she had begun, she said she noticed that right on the heels of this lovely spiritual experience was this thought, this can't be happening to me. I wonder if it's real or if I'm just making it up. That's doubt. And she was able to catch that little doubting voice that came in. She thought about it for a moment and she said, you know, it doesn't matter if it's my imagination or if it's real. That's not an important question. The fact is, is that this is more in line with what I value and the way I want to manifest in life. So I don't need to analyze whether it's real or not. I can just go with it, just take the next step, just you know, work with that without dropping out of that experience to start doubting our capacity to have that experience. And there are times in our life where we'll notice something, there'll be a deep opening, and then because it's unfamiliar to us, we'll back off with this fear, with this doubt. And it's important at that moment to be able to turn and to look at the doubt. It's just doubt and not give it the power to stop us. So interest in the mind, mindfulness, helps us see doubt as it is, as just a painful thought, as a painful mental state, so that we're not so entangled in the thought, I have to figure this out, I have to do this, I've got to decide. First we pause, we turn our attention to the doubting mind, and we work with that mental state for some time. We don't necessarily need to understand everything immediately. This can be very difficult for people to kind of accept that we don't know, that we don't understand, even things that are very intimate in our lives. 
being able to rest in this not knowing, this open space of not knowing, is a real counter to doubt. But it's difficult because very often we want to be in the know, we want to have the answers, we want to be articulate, we want to be able to explain things, we want to be rational, maybe we were academic achievers, maybe we're in a powerful position and we don't want to be seen as vulnerable or uncertain. Whatever the issue is, if we can't recognize that we can rest in not knowing, then we'll be disempowering ourselves from the strength of that truth and instead substituting it with, what, just a belief or an opinion or a view or a doubt. There's a lot that we just don't know or understand. A lot because... Much of what we know, we only know to the extent of our experience. And that's continuously unfolding. There have been many times when I've led small group discussions in retreat practices, in retreats, or I've been in small groups when I'm on retreat, and somebody will describe an experience. And it may be kind of over the head of other people. And there can be uh, almost, not attack, but doubting, that that experience was real, maybe even blaming, maybe even trying to find fault, or maybe saying it's academic or it's conceptual, or judging it in some way, because we haven't had the experience for ourselves. So sometimes we cut off a sensitivity to give other people the space to be exactly where they are, because we don't know where they are. We haven't been there. But that's the truth. It doesn't necessarily happen just in spiritual experiences. We just haven't been in somebody else's shoes throughout their lives. So there's much that we really don't know. When we don't know but are not comfortable with not knowing, then the mind can easily start to think about it, thinking and intellectualizing the experience. When there's a lot of thinking and intellectualizing, then it can lead to excessive conjecture, to agitation, to perplexity, to indecisiveness, to justification, trying to justify a stance. And the mind can get exhausted in this process. In that exhaustion, that increases the fuel for doubt. So once we see the experience of the mind, or we see the nature of things for ourselves, we're not going to have any more doubt about it. That's part of why there's so much emphasis in sustaining attention, of sticking with something and continuously reflecting, to be patient as things unfold, to notice the arising, the duration, the passing of the experience, to just trust that if we do the practice, if we sit and look into the mind, that this practice does unfold. It's like a hen sitting on a nest. The hen doesn't make the chick come out of the egg. But if the hen sits on that nest, little by little, the chick grows and breaks out of the shell. The antidote, the five jhanic factors are each antidotes to the five hindrances, For doubt, the antidote is vichara, which is sustained attention. If we tend towards doubt in your general disposition in life, you might want to stay close to your meditation object 
for some time. Just to know that you have that capacity to come back. Whatever our tendencies are, I don't think they get wiped out and that we suddenly like have cured ourselves of this just by being able to focus on the breath. But we'll have an anchor. We'll have a place that we can come back when the mind starts to run off. We'll have the capacity to sustain attention. So we might sustain the attention with the breath. It might be that we make a commitment and we're very clear about our commitments so that when we make a commitment, we follow through. And we don't change that until we reflect and see that there's another wise change that needs to be made. We might set goals. We might work in in meditation. If the mind proliferates into if this, then this, then this, we might just work in manageable chunks. Okay, maybe I'll just be mindful of the next breath. Not the next 40 minutes, but the next breath. And then set the goal again. I'll try for the next one, too. Ah, In-breath, out-breath. Or we might just work with the in-breaths for a while. We might just somehow try to break things up into something that our minds feel it's possible. just feels like it's possible. Ultimately, when we look at doubt, what we see is nothing more than a thought. It's just an empty thought. We don't have to give it any power. We don't have to believe it. When we recognize the nature of doubt as being a painful thought, a painful state formed by a thought, and we cultivate sustained attention. If we're doing mindfulness with breathing, it would be sustained attention on the breath. Mindfulness of the body, sustained attention on sensation. Mindfulness of developing a loving-kindness practice, it would be sustained attention on the quality of loving-kindness or on the phrases. Sustained attention in daily life. That would be opening to the present moment, moment by moment, to reconnect through our activities. This creates a great deal of confidence, confidence that we can continue even if doubt arises. It brings hope because there's a sense that we won't be stopped by doubt. We might just have to look at doubt, pause for a moment, and then we take the next step and we continue. Let's have a couple of minutes of letting that settle and then I'd like to have some discussion about doubt. Are there any comments about doubt? Is this a factor that you've experienced? Does anybody have any doubt? Bill? There is a national doubt in the... August 27th, Atlantic Monthly. There is an article called Death Grip, and it describes the psychological research after 9-11 that gripped the country. So that the response to doubt about one's security has led to this series, not just of thoughts, but of actions. So it almost becomes an ethical responsibility in ourselves to be able to court doubt. <laughs> and because it is the exact sensation of vulnerability, <laughs> and it's only when we are vulnerable that we can grow, there's been no national dialogue about growing past the doubt. 
Is it okay to not be able to tell? Uh, or do they need to be categorized? It gives rise to some agitation that I can't quite get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. If I'm trying to you know, be mindful of feelings, trying to investigate that particular uh, basis, yeah. and I can't, I, I'm reaching for it, and I can't quite get to it. I'm pushing and trying, so yeah. it's not particularly comfortable. Yeah, yeah. This is a very specific point, but just to respond to the point, there are a couple of things. One is that everybody decides for themselves what is pleasant and what is unpleasant and where that line is where we say it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And so there will always be some uncertainty because the same experience might one day feel pleasant and another day feel, yeah, it's not the interesting thing in what you're working with isn't exactly which category you put them in because the categories are not clearly defined and they can't be because we're just talking about an experience. We're talking about a relationship to an experience. What's more important is is the desire when we undertake a task to want to complete it a certain way and to have even in something as simple as just noticing feelings and investigating feelings, want to really do it well. How does that tendency start to trigger patterns? And one of those patterns would be like having to have like really clear, really clear, and then a feeling of uncertainty um, if it's not clear. So you can play with that by not looking less deeply. Still look really carefully, but when that feeling, like you described it, you're, you're aware of the feeling, how uncomfortable it is to not know. See if you can expand your capacity to really be with not knowing something about your own experience. Sometimes we think we should know things about our own experience, but really the revelation is going to occur when we don't know, when we are not attached. It's not going to occur through the clarity of things. The clarity of things in Buddhist practice, we develop all this clarity so that we're not deceived by things. But the clarity doesn't lead to revelation doesn't lead to realization. At some point, we're going to see things so clearly that we're going to really, we're going to just not be stuck. So that's a good play. That's a nice result of the investigation of feelings. Had you put every feeling in a nice box, it wouldn't have been as interesting or as rich. Um, actually, I, as I've been more involved in practice, uh, I was raised Catholic and identified as Christian most of my life. And there was a period when I started doubting all of that, that those beliefs. But more recently, I realized I'm just disinterested in belief entirely because I've had so many. <laughs> 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 you believed in, you know, starting with the two 
often the beliefs dis- distance us from even genuine mystical experiences that we occur. That mind sneaks in to try to conceptualize. How do you know the difference? Because it's worth looking into when you, when you just really how to discern a healthy, what I called healthy doubt from unhealthy doubt, but not knowing. I often will look and see, is this allowing because doubt goes to this fixation experience this confusion confusion and 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 stuckness stuck paralysis inability Um, and not knowing leads to openness continuous looking um, exploring sensitivity investigation inquiry and there's a steadiness in not knowing but Doubt doesn't have that steadiness. Doubt is a is a is a is a real um, like that stirred up mud kind of a feeling. Do you ever feel your mountain is mud, muddy? That's the doubt. Well, let's just um, end with a silent moment, please. May all beings everywhere, known and unknown, be happy, healthy, and free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.